0: Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods in practice.
1: Dale Spencer is an assistant professor of sociology at Carleton University. Dale is the author of a number of books, including Reimagining Intervention in Young Lives, Work, Social Assistance, and Marginalization, and also Ultimate Fighting and Embodiment, Violence, Gender, and Mixed Martial Arts. Dale joins us to discuss ethnographic research with an emphasis on observant participation to better understand the sensory, phenomenological aspects of mixed martial arts. We're here to talk about ethnographic research. If you were to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it, how would you describe it?
0: Well, observant participation is, uh, in my personal opinion, the closest way you can get to a, a given phenomenon, sociological phenomenon. And so in terms of understanding it at the level of experience, and what I mean by that in my particular case was experiencing it through sight, touch, sound, taste, smell, all of the senses. And I found that that was a, a way for me to to experience um, mixed martial arts, which was my particular uh, topic, in a, an embodied way. So, um, But also, the other thing is precisely the fact that you become an actor in a game, if you will. Um, and in my particular case, uh, you start taking on, and I don't like to use the word role per se, but you become a mixed martial artist, you compete against other people, you are taking on all of the all of the different activities that that particular uh, group of people are doing. In my case, it was mixed martial arts fighters. Um, in Low Equal Wakwans' work, it was uh, it was as a boxer. And so, you, you what is at stake for you is both personal, but it is also much more broader in terms of uh, sociologically. You are um, your investment is how you compete and, and how that is translated into your own work and how that's in your write-up is, is all hinging on this idea that you were an actor in a much broader world. And, and that's different from participant observation in the sense that you seem to be a kind of watching the game as it's going on. And that's, that's a great way because sometimes you, you
1: get a, a different perspectives. So as you mentioned, you're, uh, you've recently conducted research on mixed martial arts. Um, what were your essential research questions or your topics of inquiry when you began the project? So I, I was both interested in the process
0: by which someone went from being uh, or became a mixed martial artist and the embodiment of that and how it feels, how one experiences um, becoming a mixed martial artist and how uh, what, what things uh, a fighter has to go through in order to become that. So that was the kind of first question. That was more in terms of embodiment. In terms of violence, I wanted to understand how the fighters themselves conceptualize their relationship to violence as uh, being, seeing as though um, mixed martial arts is is essentially a violent sport and is probably kind of the most violent of sports in terms of in terms of the fact that it's a me- The violence is the means to to is is the end so it's a autotelic in many senses and so because of that I just wanted to understand how the fighters actually conceptualize that mm-hmm. and then in terms of masculinities I wanted to understand the relationship between men's participation in, in such a, a violent sport and how they conceptualize their masculinity and whether or not that impinged on their kind of sense of identity Um, in any way shape
1: or form. I was guided by a kind of phenomenological approach. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate a bit more on what you mean by uh, being guided by a phenomenological approach or or theoretical background? So for me I I was particularly drew from
0: uh, individuals like Husserl, Edmund Husserl, Alfred Schutz, Martin Heidegger, Maurice merleau ponty and to a lesser extent uh, a philosopher by the name of John Luke Nancy and so what I was trying to understand as is looking at the body as an intentional arc meaning that the body experiences a phenomenon uh, in relation to it. so the body is in relation to a world and so it has a a a, 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 a habitus that is a live through structure and process that's continuously experiencing the world that it's exposed to and uh, that's in uh, both becomes something that is registered at the level of the senses and allows a person to uh, continuously um, kind of become thick with experience and so the term thickness for me means something that like becomes rich with uh, so as somebody learns more techniques as part of martial arts, they they kind of well with uh, with a kind of um, embodied capability to be able to engage in uh, a sport that's that rigorous S- something that uh, that I found difficult
1: at many times. So, what was your specific methodological design mm-hmm. for the project with these with these goals or questions in mind? What I employed was uh, the work. At least I was drawing on a lot of the work
0: that was being done by uh, Sarah Pink, Paul Stoller, more anthropological uh, in orientation, in the sense that I was doing a sensory ethnography uh, that was um, specifically not just interested in the meanings that men, primarily men, attach to mixed martial arts, but also interested in its experience at the level of the senses. And so that, was, that made its way both into my role as an observant partici- participant, but also in how I analyzed my interview data. So I did 45 interviews with mixed martial arts fighters at various levels of, uh, but primarily elite level, uh, mixed martial arts, and so there's been other work your work <laughs> that's been far more of, a, of a, a Spectrum of fighters, whereas I think because of the where I interviewed it was primarily elite So I mm-hmm. my, my work is biased in that sense. So doing these interviews, and I was also looking at how uh, they reflected on the relationship between the senses and memory and I was trying to understand okay, how does smell What role does smell and how does smell allow fighters to engage in fighting? So some of the times men would tell me that they would smell their uh, their clothes and so that would bring
1: back memories of their training so they could go off and fight and so that was I was interested in that. When you first started out, did you have a good sense of what your methodology would look at? Um, Did you plan on participating from the very beginning and actually training alongside people or? Okay.
0: Uh, it's a great question. Um, so what ended up happening, my foray into the world of mixed martial arts happened because I was overweight, I had started smoking as an undergraduate and into my uh, graduate work. And so I basically quit smoking and realized that I needed to do something to get back in shape. So I joined up, uh, I had wrestled in high school. And really enjoyed that so I thought well you know I'll go to a mixed martial arts club and I'll do this for fun well what ended up happening was my supervisor at the time left to go to another university and so I was left without a supervisor and basically more or less without a project so uh, one of Aaron Doyle said well what are you doing uh, lately, I, I, I heard you're taking mixed martial arts, and I said, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm taking Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, he said, well, why don't you do that for your dissertation? And I thought, well, he's like, have you read Lo Ico Kwan? You know, he did this in boxing, and I thought, well, okay. So that's so I didn't, the m- the idea that I arrived at studying mixed martial arts and kind of that I was that ingenious or that had that much foresight is... Uh, that would be pure hubris, and it would be simply untrue. So I ended up, that was what I did. And so I was already reading a lot of the methodological uh, literature already, but I ended up having to uh, rework some of my kind of theoretical work that I was doing at the time. Uh, Specifically, I had to start reading through the kind of embodiment literature that I didn't really have a huge background in. So everything kind of happened in a kind of cobbled together at least in the initial stages in 2006 was cobbled together based on a kind of need to come up with a project
1: and then once you had that topic you had a sense of the methodology and start and the topic guided yes. the methodology and guided some literature yeah okay.
0: exactly just
1: reviewed a book
0: um on boxing it was called come out swinging um, it's a lucia, Trimbor. lucia Trimbor yeah said look i got into the field I despised boxing, I despised getting hit, yeah. but I loved watching it and I, I'm an enthusiast. And so I think that there's value to figuring out, is this for me? And in terms of observant participation, you got to figure out, is this for me? And in some cases it might not be. Okay. In other cases it will. So I think what I'm trying to get at is that a lot of the times methodologies require a certain level of experimentation.
1: Was there a point where you considered going a different direction with your methodology?
0: Well, the first time I got punched in the nose, I actually considered not, <laughs> not, not reconsidering my methodology. I've never, knock on wood, never broken my nose, but it was um, a shocking feeling when, I'd already taken martial arts prior to starting at the club, but I had never been kind of prepped are gone through the kind of that rigorous of training where, you know, say you're in somebody, somebody's in your guard, which is a position in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu where you have your legs wrapped around the person's waist and you're trying to break their posture and submit them. And I remember the first time I had somebody who was really good at keeping their posture and they just continuously punched me in the face and the ribs and in the ear and I got cauliflower ear in the worst way. And I was really beaten up, and I really considered that this wasn't what I was going to do. I, don't know, I had encouragement from a few people to just keep at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Gerlock was really my supervisor. was really good at telling me, you know, just wait it out. You're gonna, it's gonna get better. And in some ways, it did. <laughs> Which is I easy for it. an outsider to say. Yeah. Not <laughs> yes, Ex- exactly, precisely. I never considered, and this is just because I felt though as though it was maybe, at the time, I was far more inimical to quantitative uh, approaches. And this is probably, I, I've probably softened considerably up on that. I, as a PhD student, I wanted to do, and I was very much committed to, ethnography. I also believed at the time that doing a kind of quantitative approach would require a whole different set of research questions of which I wasn't trying to answer.
1: So we've talked a bit about some of your experiences in the gym. How did you actually go about collecting or accessing the data? So for people listening and thinking about you were in the gym, you were training with people, what did that mean in terms of thinking about it as data? And then what was your sampling strategy in figuring out what gyms to go to, who to talk to, what experiences count?
0: What I ended up doing was, I ended up, Emerson and Fretz uh, have a book on collecting participant observation data. And that is an act of taking field notes, which include things like uh, just documenting the day to day activities that are going on. In the, and found that for me, I wasn't, it didn't conform. So I looked a, really a lot, I was reading a lot of Sarah Pink's work. On precisely how you collect do kind of um, participant observation or observant participation in uh, using the senses so how she did it because her book is very much written okay this is how I did it and this is how it can be done and then I had a chance encounter with Laurel Richardson she's the plenary at a qualitative research conference and she. I remember her telling audience about how they can Different layers of of participant observation, and for me, I always thought of and structured my field notes. So I had a series of black black notebooks that I would write all my field notes in. And then a lot of the times, uh, if it was a kind of run-of-the-mill day, sometimes I would have symbols that I used in my in my notebooks that referred to specific things that we did, so that I wasn't. Continuously writing out things like, oh, uh, "Did Tabata protocol on on the punching bag at the end?" Mm-hmm. Well, that is, you know, just it, it was it's a type of workout that I didn't need to kind of rehash in terms of experience of of talking about what that is like and what it's all about. So it just allowed me to kind of, in short, talk about what happened that day. And so every day I went back to my, after my training sessions and write them out. And if there was a particular event that stood out in my mind, I would really try and um, make sure that those notes were transferred from, I would write them out right after in my black notebook, but a lot of the times I would transfer them onto onto, uh, Microsoft Word documents. In terms of access issues, well, I faced a very interesting, I had my local club that I was training at that everyone knew and was fully aware that I was, and I would make, if a new person came in, I would make them aware of what was going on. And so consent issues become very interesting in that particular case, because everybody that I was training with knew that I was, what I was doing, that I was doing a project on mixed martial arts, and that I would, in a lot of cases, I was doing interviews with them, and I also would have them consent to the fact that they would be part of my uh, data collection process as a deserving participant. And to be quite honest with you, most didn't really even care. As long as I was there training and helping out, they didn't really care. When I did travel to other gyms to train, I didn't take field notes because I was, because I couldn't ensure that level of, uh, that level of um, consent. And so that was a kind of thing that complicated. So I would go and it served more as a kind of, a way of, for me to verify that what was transpiring at my club where I was training was being emulated or it was being uh, was also the same at at other clubs. Also if you're trying to get interviews from someone if you step on the mat and you're training with them there's far higher likelihood that they in turn will want to do an interview with you later because of the fact that you've kind of shown look i'm not just somebody that's coming in to tip over the apple cart and expose something like in particularly i i was at a stage where mixed martial arts was really trying to get sanctioned in a lot of u.s states because it's a massive market especially in ontario which is where I was living at the time, where it wasn't sanctioned. So you had all these issues, and so people were very aware of the risk in talking to someone who they couldn't trust. And so that was that brings me to my next point is that I tried to build tr- trust vis a vis training alongside uh,
1: other fighters. Did you face any unexpected challenges or any barriers during the process?
0: There were some some people who just didn't want to talk to me, and. Uh, maybe it was because they might not have liked me as a person or didn't want to take time out of their schedule to talk to me and so that was a missed opportunity challenges were primarily in the way of dealing with injuries so over the course of my, my ethnography I made a trip to Thailand and while I was there, I trained in a small camp in northern, northern Thailand. And so, I was there for two months, and at the end of the, about seven weeks in, I took a fight with a Thai fighter, and we were fought at 170 pounds, it was equal weight, and I thought I was pretty prepared, and I ended up fighting. I went through the first round and then the second round, Uh, He kicked me on the side of the leg and my knee buckled. And so I went down, I could not fight. And so that, that left a very lasting mark on me in terms of my abilities to continue on the ethnography. So I ended up, that injury specifically was something that hampered my ability to go on, to do and have a professional mixed martial arts fight. So my ethnography is is a is a case of failure, and so when you're an observing particip- participant, you are at stake. You're you have a vested interest in succeeding, and but the reality of the matter is is that you are also open, very clearly, to uh, fail in that world. And for me, I I was uh, I was probably at the best. Fitness level I would had ever been. Uh, I think I was running Around 14 kilometers a day seven in the seven kilometers a morning in the morning uh, Seven kilometers in the afternoon in Thailand. I was training Probably six hours a day it was I felt as though I was at the point where I could come back to Canada I could get a professional mixed martial arts fight and I would have succeeded in my in my endeavor to become a mixed martial artist. And so because of that injury, because of the fact that it took me out 6 weeks and 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 it was really hard to rehabilitate my knee, I it compromised my ability to deliver on the ethnography, like to actually say, okay, I'm going to get into into the ring and fight. So I did I did have a, a, a tie a tie boxing fight which most people have ever watched it is quite brutal and it was a very brutal experience. The reality is, is that that's the greatest challenge mm-hmm. is that you have to you're you are faced with the challenge of succeeding. Mm-hmm. And there you have also are open to failure. So I think that uh, introduces a level of risk into the whole
1: data collection process that uh, is not really present in any other uh, method. Did you feel like the importance of taking a a professional mixed martial arts fight was to further your ability to understand the process and write about it? Or was it because you were so caught up in the field and becoming part of that field that it was more of a personal? I would
0: more uh, side on the, uh, the side of the ladder. I felt as though it ceased to, at certain points in my ethnography it ceased to be about this is compromising my professional <laughs> <laughs> standing um, it ceased to be about the mandates of the ethnography I had it had taken on a kind of emotional commitment and I had a lot of friends that had called me on it and had said to me you're far too emotionally wrapped up in this whole world and your your drive to." F- to fight and they would question whether or not this is a good idea uh, I remember I I was with my now partner and we had just first started dating and she said to her, like what is are you crazy like she said are you are you are is something wrong with you because she knew me on one level and as a I like to think I'm a kind person but when you are training you're thinking of this of other people as both pursuing a same goal and uh, mixed martial arts is still a sport and that that need and drive to compete was uh, became part of my thinking I became part of what I wanted to do it became part of my life goals so that, that was where the commitment came in. And, but I think when I, after I had stopped uh, really training seriously, I looked back and I thought, well, actually the failure to actually do that spoke volumes about what, uh, what it means to be and the difficulties of being a mixed martial arts fighter. It really, so that finding in, in itself reveals that not every Tom Dick and Harry can just walk into a, a cage and fight at the level of the USC, the ultimate fighting championship. Mm-hmm. These elite organizations that speak to the fact that uh, the sport itself has progressed to the extent that that is, has to be your livelihood, that is, has to be your whole life, it's all consuming. So I think that that's what it, it spoke to. And then I still train Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, so I have now for over seven years, Um, it's probably one of my key passions in life Uh, and I I really feel like it adds uh, something to my life that uh, no other sport that I've um, I've participated in uh, has contributed to my overall kind of way of looking at the world and in a very giving surprisingly giving uh, and and enriching uh, element of my life. It's 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 one of these kind of things where I feel like I'm part of a broader community of people, and that's something that you couldn't get out of any other method.
1: When you're teaching undergraduates, we talk re- research methods. We talk about the positionality of the researcher, um, and it seems like you're really getting into that here. So, how did that play a part in the research process? Or also in the writing process, when you're thinking about this level of emer- immersion that you achieved and being caught up in really the, the passion for the field.
0: For me, I found that my ability I, to be kind of reflexive about where I sit, where I'm situated in relation to my subject matter, is that I found that I continuously wanted to kind of think about how my, both my data collection was influenced by... The fact that I'm a white heterosexual male within uh, a mixed martial arts club populated primarily by other white well there was a, a somewhat of a variation in terms of the ethnic background but primarily white heterosexual males that were training in the sport and so that my level of inclusion my level of how much uh, they were giving over to me was was influenced by that. And so they were far more open to having me come over and hang out at their houses. And and then there's also a kind of recognition that when I was looking at my interview data and looking at my observing participation data, that I had to be kind of aware of how how I'm situated in, in relation to, because um, I often treated my observing participation data as a kind of interpretation of what was going on. So I tried to situate it according to where I fit in relation to the other club members. And then when I was looking at my interview data, I was very much aware of the fact that a lot of the time these are interpretations of interpretations. And and I didn't kind of think of it as a kind of real, un, untainted, as I, I only thought of it as a kind of particular perspective on what's going on within within the mixed martial arts world, and and I think that what is is brilliant about kind of looking at one's own narrative and other narratives about the sport is that you kind of see the way in which they overlap and which ways in
1: which they diverge two other key concepts that students learn in research methods are the ideas of generalizability and validity. Mm-hmm. So how do these factor into your project, um, considering it's somewhat unique methodology?
0: Okay, well one of the, the things that, that I think really is about observing participation is the fact that when you're talking about issues of, like say, external validity, mm-hmm. you're not taking people out of their where they're training, where they're hanging out, where they go. You're going to their houses. You're seeing what they actually live and how they live. You are you get a level of, of ability to verify um, what they're saying in their interviews at their homes, uh, how they treat their partners. You're getting to know them on a level that other experimental, I would call it, where you bring somebody into a laboratory environment and you decontextualize them from how they actually uh, experience the world and so that's what observing participation allows you to do is to be within those environs and be able to understand how they how they experience that particular space and how that space is often appropriated in particular ways uh, that it's that's that is Um, specific to that particular uh, subculture. But in terms of generalizability, this ability to be able to say in some way shape or form that mixed martial arts fighters are across the board violent human beings that go out and do terrible things, that kind of generalization that was never my keen interest. I wanted to offer a particular cut, a particular version of their worlds, and L- allow the reader of my ethnography to see how, especially if they're a mixed martial arts fighter, to see to what degree that actually matches up with their experience. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times I was taking other people's work, your work, uh, you know, Low Equal Quant's work on boxing and all the kind of combat sports, people doing work on combat sports and seeing how my experience, how my work lines up with them and which ways it diverged from their work. And I think that's, a, that's an important way of kind of talking about verification, not necessarily generalizability in terms of the way in which quantitative methodologists make these or aspire to, uh, that's the keyword I'm, uh, I'm using, aspire to make generalized statements about a sport as varied and as complex as mixed martial arts. Mm-hmm.
1: So who was your intended audience when you were uh, starting to write either articles or books and did that shape either the research or the writing up of the research?
0: Yeah most definitely. I, my intended audience uh, was first the sociology of violence and the sociology of sport audience and the body studies audience and so I was speaking to those particular literatures reading through them seeing what the contours of that those literatures are and then from there i was also wanted to make some of my articles were written in such a way that i hoped at some level would resonate with uh the mixed martial arts fighters that i was interviewing Mm -hmm. and that i was training alongside so that to me was my two primary aims and in relation to some articles that you publish you end up writing in such a way that uh, you're speaking to an intended kind of theoretical audience of which that audience you have to kind of speak at that level so when I was say publishing I published an article in ethnography and that article in ethnography I was far more committed to speaking in in a language of which could be at some level understood by uh, the mixed martial arts fighters that participated in my study. And that's also recognizing that many of those people are educated, uh, some are middle class, not all of them, some are middle class uh, individuals that have gone to university,
1: and so they they would understand it at that level. I was thinking we could finish up by first asking What are some of the limitations of the approach and then after that you could tell us some of the main advantages or selling points
0: one major disadvantage is that sometimes you get far too emotionally invested in your participation in that world and what ends up happening is that your whole kind of life becomes contingent on this thing that you come quickly to learn you have very little control over so that's the first point the second point is is that it is often interpreted as being somewhat subjective or anecdotal because you're the one that's collecting the data but i think because of the tools that have developed within the ethnographic world especially around note-taking and around being systematic and layered in terms of your note-taking that 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 avoids that kind of um, that critique but you have you're opening yourself up to that kind of criticism the other thing is is that you you have to be particularly savvy at blending in if you are a person that is if you're a person that is averse to to being social and there is a number of academics that I've run into in the course of my life that are really not good at talking pe- to people that are not academics so it is breaking uh, down that kind of barrier that we as within our silos, in our, uh, in our academic worlds, tend to prop up. And so ethnography looks less like a, a academic coming down from his uh, mount on high and then descending into the worlds of these, you know, uh, whether it was the deviance of Polsky's era era or whatnot, not, it, it becomes less like that. You become friends with these people. and So that leads me into the kind of what are the advantages is that you make, you construct or you form an area of your life that heretofore you never had. And it can become an enriching part of your life in that prior to that ethnography or prior to that observing participation never existed. So I think that's the most important part about it and then I think that you actually get to experience at some level uh, what the people that you're studying actually experience in the ongoing activities that are part of that world. In my case I got to feel what it's like to kick a Muay Thai pad. I got to feel what it's like to train six hours a day. I got to train, I got to feel what it was like to wear a jujitsu gi and train. I got to feel what it was like to execute a technique and to submit someone. And I think it, it takes an entire ment- I, 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 process, I would call it, of learning that, of submitting to someone else and submitting someone like in the sense of applying a technique or getting hit in the face or hitting that other place inc- involves an entire process that needs to be overcome that uh, I don't believe that I was ever quote unquote naturally uh, able to do so it was something that I had to learn over the course of my observing participation that in fact when you hit the person you're they are learning from that as well as you're learning and it becomes part of the process so you actually you go through what Dreyfus and Dreyfus were talking about in terms of the learning process of going from the neophyte to the expert and you you feel what that's like it's not just about a kind of mental comprehension but it's a physical it's an embodied comprehension of what it means to go from being in my case from somebody who had no idea what it what jujitsu was all about and and had terrible technique when it came to stand-up fighting so that that I think was the greatest uh, element is that I actually was able to document in very real ways what it feels like to go from somebody who was in a fight to somebody that well I would say I'm a more accomplished ground fighter than I am a stand-up fighter but yeah yeah I actually understood what that meant.
1: That's great thank you for uh, talking about this with us. Okay thank you very much.
0: On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give methods a chance.